Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome listeners to your all-time Radio Monday, where I bring you remastered episodes straight from an old-time series. These series are produced around the 1940s and have old-school actors with a range of stories depending on the series. Lately, I've been remastering the Black Museum, which are old-time radio episodes focused on household items being used to maim, slash, or facilitate murder. The Black Museum is also presented by Orson Welles, a fantastic actor, writer, and director with a very unique and charismatic voice. One of my favorite quotes from Orson Welles is, If you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop your story. <laughs> Just great. Now folks, your two tales today were a doozy. The Car Tie is our first episode, wrought with pops, clicks, random silences, and frequent mic thud sounds. Distracting and annoying, to say the least. And I can't have you lovelies listening to that. So... I was able to deploy two new tricks today, truncating silences in the audio range less than 0.03 seconds and using plosive filters to cut out the thud sounds. This made a huge difference. If you're wondering what plosive filters do, it cuts out the thuds, pops and any invasive bits of audio that are significantly sharp in the audio piece. I was able to tweak that filter to eliminate all of them, or at least most of them. Now, those with keen hearing will still pick up some hiccups, but nothing as bad as it was. A really good challenge today, folks, and a great way to start my week. Your second story, Champagne Glass, was much easier, but had a heavy noise challenge, which I'm used to, so nothing major there. Either way, I hope you like today's stories. Now, before we start, I must thank... The awesome Patreon supporters that supercharge this podcast. My Ode Nighty Titans. Matthew J. Bauer, the Tire Iron Hero. Known around his city as the Debilitator of Crime. The Tire Iron Hero is always there to cripple those who scoff at the law. He's never been caught himself, but he always catches the criminal. He always seems to know exactly where they are. Maya the Menacer. No criminal feels safe in her town. Ask around. Mention her name. The populace know not who she is, and the crooks of this town fear her. They say it only takes a touch from her for you to know why she's feared. Thanks to you two lovelies, I've purchased a subscription to Soundcrate, which means I'll have new sound effects to play with, new music, and eventually new YouTube content. Thanks to both of you. And in the next episode, I'm going to implement these new sounds and musical pieces. Thank you so much. And my two lovelies, that are my white tea warlords, I own cows, the cattle prod prowler, just when you think you're safe. Stealing that champagne glass? Think again. And Lee Bauer, nicknamed King Keen, nothing escapes his street senses. Many have tried to only have woken up in an alley somewhere downtown. Thanks to both of you for being so awesome. 
It's always a joy to come back to your comments and you're helping the podcast grow as a result of that support. Thanks again, mates. And of course, my El Grey Enforcers. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Crisanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Robert Fisher, and Tasha Moncrief. The lifeblood that keeps the podcast growing. Thank you all for being there for this podcast. It would not be the same without your support. Thank you. Now, turn the lights off, get comfortable, and let us all listen to some old-time radio. This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. A repository of death. Here in the grim stone structure on the Thames which houses Scotland Yard is a warehouse of homicide, where everyday objects, pin, a garden hose, a handbag, all are touched by murder. Here's a car tire. There were three others, all attached to a sedan. They were moved. Great Scott, Inspector. Those vandals, they've, they've stripped the car of everything. Even the four tires, sir. There's nothing left. Except evidence. Now today, one of those tires, the one that became a vital clue in the case, can be seen in the Black Museum. the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, the Black Museum. Well, here we are. Black Museum. Scotland Yard's Museum of Murder. As here lies death. On the shelves, around the walls, death in many disguises. Here's a length of electric wiring. The protective insulation has been stripped away. The man touched it. He died. The jury found it was murder. Here's a card. Invitation to a party. The invitation was accepted. Death was the end of that. Right, here's the tire. It's an ordinary car tire. Once it belonged to a sedan that stood in a garage at South End. On a certain night some years ago, two men entered the garage quietly. After first forcing the lock. There we are, Ted. Good work, Harry. Look at her. Ben spoken you. And she's ours once we get her out of the garage. Ah, quietly does it. I'll take up the brake. Right. We'll push her out in the street and down the road a bit. Okay, I'm ready. The object of this stealthy midnight visit was a new car. The two men pushed the automobile down the slope of the road, jumping in when the car began to gather speed. All right, Harry, get in. Oh, nice going. 
Get us, Scotty, Ted. Right. Not a sound behind us. We got away with it. Oh, it was easy. By morning, we'll have everything we want off this car. Tires, spare parts, the seat. And then we'll ditch what's left, eh? We'll make our fortune this way, Addy, my boy. Sounds easy money. It is. Come on, I'll show you what this car can do. Flat out! A car traveling fast along the road to Eastwood. Its twin lights cutting beams in the darkness of the night. And a policeman cycling homeward. Hello? What's that up there, eh? What? A man in the center of the road. Oh, wait till our lights pick him up clearly. It's a... It's a cop. Oh, and he's got his hand up, signaling us to stop. Ted, you don't think... What, the word's got out this car's been pinched? Not a chance. Then what's this copper doing? Oh, might want to lift down, you never know. There's his bike at the side of the road. Ted, I don't like Take it. Take it easy, will you? We'll bluff our way out. If he makes trouble, I can handle him. Well, go easy on using that gun. Leave it to me. Good evening, Constable. Anything the matter? I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll have to ask you not to speed like that along this road, sir. Were we speeding? Well, I, I think you know you were, sir, you know. There's been a number of serious accidents around here lately. Oh, dear. Now, may I see your license? My, my license? Uh, yes, sir. A funny thing, I'm afraid I don't have it on me, Constable. Then I'll have to request some other means of identification, sir. Well, I, uh, do you know, I haven't anything on me at all. Well, where are you going, sir, and uh, where have you come from? Well, we, uh, we're just driving. Hmm. Is the car yours? No, Constable. The car belongs to me. Oh, I see, sir. Then, uh, would you tell me its number? On the front of the car, if you want to see it. I know the number, but do you? Well, well, no, not offhand. As I thought, sir. This is a stolen car. Stolen? You'd both better get out. Now, come on. I'll have to take down some particulars. Yeah, yeah. What makes you think you can order us around here? Get out, I said. Come on. I want your name. And put that gun away. Say your prayers, copper. Give me that gun. Don't let him take it, Chad. I won't. Don't worry. You ask for trouble, copper, you're going to get it. drives away. A man lies dead on the roadway. A murder has been committed. Murder of a policeman. Lovely morning, George. You wouldn't think it to read the morning paper, Tom. Nothing in it but crime. Ah, you won't find much crime round these parts. Here, what's the matter with your dog? To found something ahead there. It's not like him to get that excited. What's the matter with him? Now, wait a minute, George. Huh? Unless I'm mistaken, it ain't only in the morning papers you'll find crime. What do you mean? Well, ahead there. Yeah? Over by the side of the road. It looks like a man. So okay. Come on. 
Why, it's Charlie Acker. He's dead. That morning, Scotland Yard was represented the scene of the crime by Inspector Clancy and Detective Sergeant Redding. He was shot three times, Redding. Nasty business, sir. Oh, here's a notebook lying on the ground beside him. Yes, and he was holding a pencil in his right hand. Well, that seems fairly straightforward, sir. He was about to take down some particulars from a person or persons whom he'd met. Uh, The evidence suggests that, Sergeant. Wait a minute, Inspector. His torch is here in his pocket. Is it? And there's no street lighting nearby. How could he have been writing? Mm, By the light of a vehicle, presumably. Of course, sir. Either the headlights... Or the interior lighting of a car or a truck. More likely the interior lighting, don't you think, Inspector? Well, we'll work on that assumption first. Which means it was a car. Uh, yeah, there are some tracks here. You can see the skid marks. Now, they might be caused by a car starting fairly fast. I want those tracks photographed. The photographs were duly sent to certain experts at Scotland Yard. And a report came back to Inspector Clancy. Report from the yard, sir. Yes, Sergeant Redding? Those tracks were made by an Evans car. An Evans, eh? Get a full list of all stolen cars within a 50-mile radius. We'll see if there was an Evans amongst them. There were two. One was found. Inspector Cranston interviewed the owner of the other. Yes, it was uh, taken the night before last, Inspector. Uh, Some bounder picked the lock of my garage and got away with a car. I'll get a full description from you, sir. Uh, Certainly, but I say, I say, Scotland Yard doesn't usually go chasing stolen cars, does it? Not usually, eh, Colonel Fentress? Oh, Uh, there's something else behind it, is there? Oh, excuse me a moment. Hello, hello, Fentress speaking. Uh, oh, yes, 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 uh, just a moment. Uh, it's for you, Inspector. Thank you, sir. Hello? Yes, Redding? At Rayleigh? I see. Yes, yes, I'll come down right away. Oh, um, um, something happened, Inspector? An Evans car's been found, sir, abandoned in a ditch outside Rayleigh. A new Evans. Index mark? T.W. 6120. Uh, But but, but that's mine, my Joe. Then you'd better come along, sir. They found the car, the police going over it for fingerprints. Curious crowd gathered around it. It was a vastly different car from the one Colonel Fentress had locked in his garage two nights earlier. Great Scott, Inspector, those vandals, they've the car of everything. Even the four tires. There's nothing left. Except evidence. What do you mean, Inspector? This was the car concerned in the murder of Constable Hacker on Eastwood Road. My car? Concerned in that killing? Come with me, Colonel. I'll show you the evidence to prove it. That car is the first link in the long chain at the end of which is the murderer. And a further link is the missing four tires, one of which became the vital clue in the case. That tire can be seen today in the Black Museum. A car was found, abandoned in a ditch outside Rayleigh. 
You can see for yourself, Colonel Fentress, on the running board. I'm a dark stain there. It's blood? Yes, it's blood. See this? Uh, Oh, a spent cartridge case. It was found on the floor of the car. Then my car was concerned in that poor fellow's murder? We'll make confirmatory tests, of course. The bloodstain will be checked against the constable's grouping and the cartridge case will go ballistics. These routine checks must be carried out. But Colonel Fentress knew and Inspector Clancy knew that the driver of the stolen car had taken part in the policeman's murder. And knowing this, the inspector was able to reconstruct the crime. We don't know why Constable Hacker pulled the car up, Sergeant. He was cycling home. Perhaps the Evans car was speeding. Well, whatever the reason, he called on it to halt. And in the process of questioning, he came to realize the car was stolen. He'd have brought out his notebook and pencil to take down some particulars, sir. And for doing that, he was killed. The picture of the crime was clear, but now, how to find the driver of the car? Nothing was known about him. There were no eyewitnesses. One man had seen the driver, and he was dead. Why would they begin searching? We'll begin right here at the car, Sergeant. It's funny about those tires, sir. Very funny. But not only the tires are missing. No, the toolkit's been taken, and the jack, and most of the spare parts. The windscreen wiper's been removed, so have the headlamps and a car radio Colonel Fentress had installed. Vandalism, sir? Well, if it was vandalism, it was well planned, Sergeant. Yeah. Now, there are lorry tracks over there. The stuff was loaded on and driven away. Car stealing, sir, for spare parts and tires. A very profitable pastime. Now, what was taken out of this car would probably be worth um, two, three hundred pounds on the second-hand market. Black markets, up for the tires. I wonder who handles second-hand parts and tires around this district. Come on. Where to, Inspector? The nearest garage. They found a garage less than half a mile away. The proprietor, reassured that he was not under suspicion, proved to be helpful. Spare parts and tires. Quite a few places round here who handles them, Inspector. Uh, could you list them for us, sir? Certainly. Come into the office. There were six names on that list. Six visits to make. Sergeant Redding made them, posing as a driver in search of new tires. Oh, good morning. I need four new tires for an Evans car. Can you help me out? Williams and Sons were sorry. They hadn't had any tires to sell for months past. Field and Company said the same thing. So did Hammond and Barden, Kennedy and Sons. Then Sergeant Redding paid his last visit. The sixth name on the list. A small motor workshop on the road out of Eastwood. A car was being overhauled by a mechanic. A lorry stood on a vacant block of land beside the workshop. A sign at the front of the building said, Randolph and Burns, motor engineers and spare parts. Yes, sir? Uh, I need four new tires for an Evans car. Can you help me out? An Evans? 
You own an Evans car? Oh, not me, chum, no. No, it's for the governor. I've been everywhere trying to get these tyres. Well, you know, I might be able to set you up. Of course, they're in short supply. We'll pay whatever you ask for them. Okay. Hey. Okay. Here a minute, will you? What is it? Fellow here wants to buy some Evans tyres. Huh? Chauffeur, aren't you, mate? Yeah, that's right. Well, you can set him up, can't we? No, we can't. But, Ted, he'll pay the right I price. tell you, we can't. We can't set him. How can we when we haven't seen an Evans tower in months? But, Ted... People just don't bring us second-hand tires anymore, mister. Sorry. Sergeant went out, went back to where Inspector Clancy was waiting for his report. Something he'd seen deep in the eyes of the man called Ted told him the search was at an end. I don't know what spoiled it, Inspector. Perhaps he recognized me. Perhaps he was just being cautious. You say the other man was ready to sell you the tires? Ready and willing, sir. I think they're the ones we want. I'm almost sure of it. All right, we'll make some further inquiries about them both. Now, first of all, uh, business registration. We'll get their full names from that. The business records office holds many secrets. The directors of England's leading companies, the balance of power and mighty industrial concerns. It also lists the many thousands of small businesses, companies, partnerships, sole traders, their trade and management personnel. Uh, here we are, Sergeant. Randolph and Burns... Motor engineers, Eastwood. Partners, Edward Byrne. Oh, that'll be your friend, Ted. And Harold Randolph. Probably the other man I spoke to. Well, take a note of their names. We'll see if the method index section knows them. The method index section at Scotland Yard. That's a vast room of records. The walls are lined solidly with filing cabinets. Here are the details of all the crimes, from murder to petty theft. Here are the names and the aliases of all the criminals ever convicted in any English court. Filed and cross-filed for easy checking. Uh, those two men you asked me to check, Inspector Clancy. Find anything on them, Severs? There's no record for Harold Randolph. What about the other one? Burns, yes, we know him. Ted Burns, motor mechanic, four convictions. The first uh, from my hometown, funnily enough, Oxford City Police Court. The child? Uh, stealing a motor car. And what were the other three charges, Severs? All connected with motor theft, sir. Uh -huh. uh, one was for removing spare parts from parked vehicles. Another time he was convicted for selling a stolen car. That's all I want. Thank, Thank you, you Severs. Inspector Clancy and Sergeant Redding drove back to Eastwood. On the road there, about 50 yards from the motor workshop, they waited. They saw two mechanics leave at 5.30 on their way home. Then, a few minutes later... There he is, Inspector. That's Harry Randolph. And he's alone. It was a very peaceful scene. The casual passerby would have noticed a dark sedan slowing down beside a thick-set man in overalls. Mr. Randolph? Yeah? Oh, it's you. Still off of them tiles, eh? 
In a manner of speaking, sir, this is Inspector Clancy from Scotland Yard. Scotland Yard? Get in, Mr. Randolph. No, not me, Inspector. Now, you've got nothing against me. On the contrary, we have a great deal against you. Get in. Randolph was defiant at first. But when the advantages of turning King's evidence were pointed out to him, he became almost verbose. It wasn't me who thought of a scheme. I, I was talked into it by him. The scheme being to steal cars, sell their spare parts and tires, and abandon them? Yeah. Ted said we couldn't get enough parts and tires to stay in business otherwise. He talked me into helping him to pinch the Evans. Well, go on. Well, everything was sweet, and then on the way back to Eastwood, the cop signals us to stop. Tells us we were speeding. He'd have got our names and all. So you shot him? Dead? I, I didn't do it. Ted shot him. The gun's hidden in the desk, down at our works. His fingerprints will be on it. I told him not to shoot. He, he wouldn't listen. <laughs> We took the lorry down and got everything we could from the car and brought it back. And where is that stuff now? Well, some of it we sold and three of the tires went off late today. I would have sold a lot to the copper here, but Ted was wise to him. He, he can smell coppers. Three were sold. Then one tire is left on the premises? Yeah. But listen, won't you? I, I might have helped to pinch the car, but I had nothing to do with the murder. Ted did that. He shot a copper! A report on the tyre we found on the premises, sir. It comes from an Evans car, all right, and matches the tracks near Constable Hacker's body. Then our case is complete, Sergeant. The gun was found, the fingerprints on the wheel rims belong to Randolph and Burns, and now the tyre. All right, Randolph, you've one more chance to help us. Where's Burns? Come on, you must have some idea. Right. But you've got to look after me. I'm not promising anything. Where's Burns? He's trying to get away overseas. I, I, I think he was heading for Liverpool. He was always talking about a pal of his who was a ship's mate. Can you remember the name of the ship? Oh, I, I, I think it was called the Briar Rose. <laughs> I have reason to believe your name is Ted Burns. Ted what? <laughs> you got the wrong man, Sam. I don't think so, Mr. Burns. I have here a warrant for your arrest on a charge of murder. Hey, you've got nothing on me? You've got no evidence? Oh, yes, we have, Mr. Burns. All the evidence we need. And today that tire occupies a place in the Black Museum. The murder of Constable Hacker on the lonely Eastwood Road was solved by the patient methods of Scotland Yard and by the talking of Harry Randolph, whose verbosity put him behind bars for many years to come and brought his unholy friend Ted Burns to the last walk, the end of a rope, one morning at eight o'clock. A crook's plan misfired into murder. 
And neither Burns nor Randolph had the talent for outwitting the men of the yard. So it was that another chapter of murder was closed. Another record added to the method index section. And another exhibit, the car tire, was added to the Black Museum. And now until we meet next time in the same place and I tell you another story about the Black Museum. I remain, as always, obediently yours. This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. Black Museum, a repository of death. Yes, here in the grim stone structure on the Thames, which houses Scotland Yard, is a warehouse of homicide, where everyday objects, a man's necktie, a woman's glove, a boy's school cap, all are touched by murder. Now here's a champagne glass. That's a familiar object, long stem, delicate curve, shining crystal. This fragile object belongs to New Year's Eve, to weddings and anniversaries. Funny about things like this, Sergeant? Funny, sir? I'd say that one was loaded. I meant funny in a philosophical sense, Sergeant. Funny how human beings can take an article meant for happiness and use it for tragedy. Now, anyway, that champagne glass can be found today in the Black Museum. From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, the Black Museum. Museum of Murder. This place echoes with violent death. Voices are hollow here, whether the hollowness is caused by the high-vaulted ceilings or by the reaction of the human mind to the atmosphere of this room. The effect is the same. Everybody who comes here learns a sense of fear. It's natural, because here like death, Death, cruel, unnecessary, vengeful, or greedy. Still a kind of death brought by one man or one woman on another. This is a record to be studied not merely by criminologists, but by every student of man's inhumanity to man. Here's an iron skillet, heavy in your hand, the kind of kitchen utensil your grandmother used, well-balanced, quite suitable for frying eggs or veal chops or... For bashing a skull, perhaps. There's little doubt as to the use which brought this particular skillet here. Yes. And here's the champagne glass. Well designed. Graceful. You could place it with a companion on a silver tray. 
Ask Colonel Harry Reed did. Could pop a cork and then fill the glasses. As Colonel Harry Reed did. And you might say, as the dapper colonel did, To you, my dear Elizabeth, to your return and your complete recovery. I wish I could drink to that wholeheartedly, Harry. Really, I do. Well, why not, my dear? You've been released, your learn. That's it, exactly. I've been released. Not merely sent home from a hospital, so to speak. After all, the hospital I was in had bars on the windows. Oh, I insist, my dear, that you touch glasses with me and drink at once. That's no way to talk. But, Harry, I... Ah, then, no buts, Elizabeth. Many people have had nervous breakdowns, and the vast majority of them have recovered. Very well, Harry, dear. But not to me, to you, the most patient of husbands in the world. So they drank the champagne, and all was well. It's very pleasant, very relaxing, reassuring. But the world is always too much with us, and the colonel finally had to say, Are you rest until dinner, Elizabeth? I have a brief appointment with my solicitor, Davis. You remember him? Must you, dear, tonight? Well, it's at his request. I won't be long. And the colonel kissed his wife, and the colonel went off to his appointment. It's six months now, Reed. One way or the other, the matter ought to be settled. I assure you, Davis, there's nothing to worry about. These things take time. There's been plenty of time. Look, Reed, if you don't want to complete the deal, return the 500 pounds. But it's not up to me. My client... Your client indicated willingness to dispose of the property. My client paid the deposit in good faith. We considered a binder on the contract. We waited six months. Your 500 pounds is quite safe, Davis. You can reassure your client. And on my side, we'll go through with the deal as soon as everything is clear. Well, I certainly hope so. My people want to take possession. And they shall. They shall indeed. And soon. Meanwhile, there's no reason for misunderstanding between us, is there? After all, we live in the same small town. We see each other constantly. You know, John, I've often wondered why we don't see more of each other. Oh, socially, that is. Rather a changeable fellow, the Colonel, isn't he? There were other changes ahead, more serious ones. Some public notice, the night our Colonel called Dr. Ashley to his home. Ah, Dr. Ashley. Good of you to come so quickly. You made it sound rather urgent, Colonel. Is it really serious? Yes, sir. I'm afraid, Doctor. Really afraid. It's my wife. Has she broken down again? No. She complains of terrible pain in her abdomen. I'd better see her at once. Yeah, this way, please. If if you can, Doctor. Uh, yes? Uh, she seems to be as much frightened as she is in pain. Oh? What exactly do you mean by that? Frightened that, uh, well, that her pain is in her imagination. I see. Oh, very well. I'll bear that in mind, Colonel. Ah, in here. If you'll wait outside, Colonel, please. Oh, must, must I, Doctor? I prefer it. Very well. Now, then, Mrs. Reed. Can you hear me, Mrs. Reed? The good Colonel waited outside the door. Up and down, back and forth, he paced, almost as we were once again on guard duty. Grim-faced, tense, he waited. At long last. 
You better come in, Colonel. Quick. Doctor, is she? I'm afraid so. I've done everything I can. A few moments later, Elizabeth Reed was at rest. At last. Tears streamed down the Colonel's cheeks. But he was silent. There seemed nothing to say. The doctor led him away and told him gently... It was acute gastritis and her heart. Uh, you want the minister, I assume, and the mortician. I'll send the certificate over. Natural causes. There was a well-attended funeral. The flowers were piled high in tribute to the colonel's position in the town as well as to the memory of his wife. And then the colonel resumed his life, somewhat more lonely but still active, bearing himself in military fashion as he went about his small real estate business and time drifted by. One month, two. And then, one day on the main street. Oh, good morning, colonel. Ah, Davis, good to see you. I hesitated discussing this your recent bereavement and so on, but don't you think we need to close our deal, Reed? Oh, yes. Uh, yes, of course. I, um... Well, that is, I'm rather by myself these days. Would you care to join me for tea or a bit something stronger one afternoon? You say when, Reed. I'll be glad to. Excellent. Then, uh, should we say tomorrow? Five-ish? Why not? Your place or mine? Well, mine, of course. Delighted to have you. That was gone, old man. Really excellent. My housekeeper has quite the touch. Thank you. I will. <laughs> Almost as if we were a pair of elderly ladies. <laughs> tea and scones. Two gentlemen, somewhat past middle age, enjoying tea and scones and making ready to discuss business. In fact, they did discuss business. The 500-pound deposit and the pending deal. And John Davis went home quite satisfied. John Davis went home and a little later... Call Dr. Ashley. I don't understand it, Doctor. My, my stomach's like, like cast iron. Always has been. Now, suddenly, this. Uh, none of us are quite as young as we used to be. Uh, even cast iron can wear thin with youth. Eat anything out of the ordinary, John? Today? Yesterday? No, no, nothing. Had some scones for tea. The butter may have been a bit rancid, but uh. tasted perfectly fresh. Over oh, Colonel Reed's. Eh? Reed's? Yes, that's why. We had a little business to discuss. He asked me over. Seemed quite lonely since his wife passed on, so I went, mostly to keep him company. Oh, nice of you. Well, uh, just take the prescription I'm leaving you. Rest a day or two. You'll be all right. What's wrong, Doctor? Oh, nothing. Just a quirk of memory. Oh? How so? Your symptoms and Mrs. Reed's rather the same. Nothing serious about it. Just odd that we should have two similar cases in such close juxtaposition. A town like this, a doctor gets to know most of the illness. As the doctor said, nothing serious. Just an interesting coincidence. And in a day or so, John Davis was up and about. Aside from a slight tenderness in his abdomen, he felt no after effects. All was well. All was quiet. Everyone was his courteous self, including Colonel Reed. Well, now, candy. And from the Colonel. 
How decent of him. Here it is, Doctor. The same wrappings it came in. Nice-looking box. Don't you care for candy, John? You haven't eaten much. As a matter of fact, I don't. I did offer a piece to the charwoman at the office. You see, one's missing. The charwoman, eh? <laughs> Is that the way you treat a gift? With the hope you are sufficiently recovered to enjoy this, Harry Reed. Rather decent of him. That's what I thought. Until the charwoman was taken with pains and reaching an hour after she ate the candy. Are you suggesting anything, John? That would be slanderous at this stage, wouldn't it? There's nothing to it, John. That couldn't be. The colonel... Well, I inquired at the probate office. He did rather well following his wife's death and her will, you know. He never had any money of his own to speak of. Former military men rarely do. Yes, it might be interesting. I've done practically no laboratory work of my own for some time. But I have a little equipment. Shall I try my hand at a bit of chemical analysis, John? I'm curious about the contents of that box of candy. You seem to be as well as I. The doctor was methodical, to say the least. He took his time setting up his equipment, preparing reagents, making ready for his private little test. Meanwhile, John Davis ran into his friend, the colonel, on the street. John! Good to see you. How are you, Harry? You're looking fit. Well, I try to keep that way. <laughs> well, care to join me for another attack of indigestion, old man? Well, today, the champagne glass we've been talking about can be seen, as you might expect, among the other exhibits in the Black Museum. Colonel and John Davis parted quite amicably on the streets. Davis watched the smart military walk, the ramrod straight back, as the colonel paraded into his own business office. And John Davis shook his head. Somehow it didn't seem quite plausible that this man might... just might be something quite different than what he seemed. The next afternoon... The telephone rang in John Davis's office. Yes? Oh, that's you, John. This is Harry here. Yeah? Harry? Oh, yes, yes, of course. How are you? Ah, very well. And you? Quite well. <laughs> no more stomach ache? No trace. Well, then, how about this evening? Oh, uh, sorry, old man. I, I can't this evening. Ah. But uh, perhaps in a day or so. Oh, too bad. Oh, I'll be speaking to you. Goodbye. Bye. That evening, Davis had a previous appointment with Dr. Ashley in his makeshift laboratory. This little operation here is the Marsh test. Oh? For arsenic. Interesting. Yes, isn't it? Particularly since I found that every piece of candy in your gift box had arsenic in it. Good Lord! Arsenic, you see, is a cumulative poison. A person may have a tolerance for quite a large amount of it. 
It usually fails to pass through the human system. It accumulates, and bit by bit, the fatal dose is built up until one day the victim dies. Dr. Ashley explained all this to John Davis. Finally, John grasped the significance of the facts. Each piece of candy would never bother the ordinary stomach or the uh, cast-iron type such as you both did you have. Most people could eat a piece or two and nothing would happen. But if, as it may have been intended, you had eaten most of the candy yourself, well, you follow me, I gather? Follow you? Doctor, I'm a step ahead of you. But exactly what that step is, I'm not sure. I think we need expert help. The local constabulary? I said expert help. Where from? The CID, Scotland Yard. It was a clear, cogent letter reciting the situation as Dr. Ashley and John Davis knew it. It was addressed to the Home Secretary, a gentleman in the British government responsible for the police force in general. In due course, the letter reached the desk of Inspector Charles in Scotland Yard. Following the set routine, Inspector Charles showed the communication to his immediate assistant, Detective Sergeant Hatch. Well, nothing else for it. You and I will have to take a small trip to the country. Frankly, I won't mind. I can use a touch of country air after all. They came into the quiet town unobtrusively. Two men on a walking tour, vacationists. They put up at the inn. Toward sundown, they strolled about the town, quite casually. They turned in at the gate with its little sign announcing that Dr. Ashley had his dispensary there. Once, however, within the doctor's office. Now then, doctor, perhaps you'd let Sergeant Hatch and I have it from the beginning. Well, my entrance into the situation came shortly after Mrs. Reed returned from the uh, sanitarium. She'd been ill? Mentally ill. Nervous breakdown? Rather more than that. She'd been certified insane. She was discharged as being quite stable once again. And you were called in? In my professional capacity. I found her past help. Acute gastritis, or so it seemed at the time. But it doesn't seem so now? You understand, Inspector, I have no facts. At least not on that side. I merely analyzed the box of candy received by John Davis shortly after he'd been taken ill. Doctor, would this Colonel Reed benefit from Mr. From Mr. Davis's death? There'd been something about a, a real estate and a deposit paid. Quite a large sum, I believe. Mr. Davis can give you the details. One final question, sir. Who had Mrs. Reed committed to the uh, institution in the first instance? Why, I believe the husband did. But the records will be available to you, of course. Of course. Oh, thank you, Doctor. If we need you... We... By the time they left the doctor's office, Inspector Charles and Sergeant Hatch felt they had heard an interesting, if circumstantial, story. Their next stop, naturally, was John Davis's home. You've no idea, gentlemen, what a relief it is to have police officers of your caliber on the job. Thank you. About the candy and the card in the box, do you have any definite reason to believe the colonel wants you, well, out of the way? There's a matter of 500 pounds he either will not or cannot explain. And um, Dr. Ashley mentioned Mrs. Reed's will. Yes, curious about that. There was one will made out entirely in favor of her children by her first marriage. The will which was accepted and executed was in the colonel's handwriting, but signed by Mrs. Reed and produced subsequent to her death. You find that interesting, I take it, Sergeant? I expect you do as well, sir. Quite. 
Mr. Davis, do you think it might be possible to exhume Mrs. Reed's body without the matter becoming common knowledge in the whole town? The men from Scotland Yard accomplished the almost impossible. Armed with the proper papers, plus tools and dark lanterns, they supervised the removal of the body at night, with no one the wiser except the necessary officials. This feat completed, they waited quite, quite patiently. A government analyst was called in. The report was brief. Inspector Charles read it to Dr. Ashley. Examination reveals the presence of four grains of arsenic, more than a fatal dose, and the largest amount of the poison I have ever found in human remains. Well, that's it, Doctor. And I didn't recognize the symptoms. Acute gastritis, I call it. Why should you have recognized them, sir? I dare say murder of any kind is hardly a common occurrence in your practice. Well, Sergeant, since our warrant is all in order, it begins to appear that a search of Colonel Reed's premises may be next on the agenda. Now the pretense of the walking tour is completely discarded. It was Saturday and the sleepy little village was just about bestirring itself. The inspector and the sergeant walked a short distance from the inn to Colonel Reed's place of business almost directly opposite Davis's office. The sergeant tried the door. Not locked, sir. A locked door in these parts would arouse more suspicion than not. Let's go in, shall we? One file cabinet, one desk, telephone, chair for visitors. <laughs> Can't do much of a business. I dare say not. Let's get to it. The search was quite thorough. The desk was emptied of its contents. These were replaced in an orderly fashion. Oh, nothing extraordinary here, sir. Well, what do you make of this, sir? Champagne glass. Rear of the file cabinet. Todd? Shall I hold it aside, sir? Yes, you may as well. Interesting, the trace of sediment. Apparently, it was never washed. After it was used the last time. Anything else in there, Sergeant? Oh, what's going on in here? Colonel Reed? Yes. More to the point, for you to identify yourselves and your business here, if any. Inspector Charles, CID. My identity card. This is Sergeant Hatch. I see. I assume you have a warrant for this search? We do. Right here, Colonel. Oh, oh very well. Go on with your work. May I ask why you were keeping the champagne glass in the file cabinet? A memento to my poor wife. We drank from it. Oh, that is, uh, she did about a week before she uh, passed away. A nice gesture, if I may say so. And still with the trace of the sediment at the bottom. Uh, oh, careful, sir. It'd be a pity to have the glass break after all this time. Oh, sorry. Awkward of me to brush against it like that. Yes, wasn't it? All right, Sergeant, you can open the desk drawer the Colonel just closed and see what he put in it. But you said you'd finish. Your pardon, Colonel. I've had quite enough of this. These paper packets weren't in here a few minutes ago, Inspector. How many? Oh, yeah, I wouldn't have twenty of them, sir. I'll take one. Thank you. White powder. Well, this wouldn't be arsenic, would it, Colonel? It not only would be, it is. Really? 
Well, as you can see, I'm wearing my gardening coat. Ordinarily, I do not come into the office on Saturday, but something came up. I've been planning an experiment in my garden, hence the arsenic. A garden, an experiment? With 20 packets of arsenic? Yes. My lawn is plagued with dandelions, roughly two dozen of them. I plan to drill a small hole at the root of each weed, pour in the arsenic in each of those packets, and kill each dandelion individually, rather than take the chance of ruining the whole lawn. Sorry, Colonel, it's a good story, but rather far-fetched. Particularly since you tried to rid yourself of the packets before we searched your person. And particularly since the charge pending is willful murder of your wife by a cynical poisoning. But this is ridiculous. Someone is... Sergeant! Keep that champagne glass safe before Colonel Reed succeeds in smashing it. Yes, sir. To Colonel Reed, you are under arrest. The charge is murder. I must warn you that anything you may be saying... I will not stand hold oh, no. it, Sergeant. I'll be acquitted. You'll see and then I'll have to leave here. A trial that will be quiet enough, Colonel. You've made several mistakes, not the least of which was your attempt on John Davis. And your preservation of this glass. A sentimental gesture, but rather silly. My bet is the sediment in it will turn out to be arsenic. You must have been very sure of yourself, Colonel, to leave this glass unwashed. Very sure of yourself indeed. Bring him along, Sergeant. I think he'll come quietly now. And today that champagne glass can be seen in the Black Museum. Orson Welles will be back with you in just a moment. There was no doubt about one facet of Colonel Reed's character. He was a man of great pride. His behavior at the trial was exemplary. His bearing, military. He repeated his story of the separate packets of arsenic for separate dandelions, and he sounded as if he'd made a good case of it. At least for himself. But not as it turned out for the jury... Colonel Reed accepted his sentence as if it were an order from a superior officer. And one morning, at the traditional time of eight o'clock, Colonel Reed marched to the scaffold as if he were on parade. And as for the champagne glass, well, it remains in its customary place, as I told you, in Scotland Yard. Now, until we meet next time, in the same place, and I tell you another story about the Black Museum, I remain, as always, obediently yours. Ah, classic Black Museum tales. The car tie episode was quite windy. We started off knowing what happened and following the investigators came to the eventual conclusion. But it was the journey that made it so enjoyable. Do you think the partner really didn't want to shoot the police officer in the end? Hmm, desperate times leads to desperate measures. What do you think? And the poisoned champagne glass, now that was really interesting. The reason, or rather excuse he gave at the end regarding the arsenic really took me off guard. Almost got me actually, until they mentioned how fervently he wanted to rid himself of those packets. Still, I think you could argue that case in court folks. Tricky fella. Well mates, stick with me Wednesday for something creepy, 
And if you have a couple of seconds to spare, swing by my Patreon to support the show. It's improving already thanks to all those that already do. And if you have any spare time after that, head on over to my iTunes page and leave a review under ratings and reviews. It goes a long way and I really appreciate it. A big thank you to all of you that have already done that. It helps me find people like you. All right, you awesomes. Take it easy, stay brilliant. I hope I kickstarted your day and week on a positive note. And as always, till next we meet.